This is On Diversity, a podcast series by the Institute of Policy Studies Singapore. I'm your host, Ong So Chin. Hello and welcome to our first episode. It's called The Cancelled and the Woke. Nope, it is not a new Korean drama series. Cancelled and Woke refer to two social phenomena that have dominated popular discourse in recent years. Woke means being politically and socially aware to injustice. For example, you're woke when you realise that your new $5 sequin t-shirt was manufactured in a sweatshop in a developing country where the workers are exploited. Exploited so you can wear something you don't mind throwing away the next day. Cancel culture is the large-scale calling out of an individual or an institution for bad behaviour or ethics, resulting in them being taken down or removed from their position. It's a very loud and public way of calling for accountability. A famous example is the Me Too movement, which saw women speaking up against rape and sexual assault, which eventually led to the arrest and conviction of Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein. Closer to home, blogger Xia Xue felt the heat when the public called her out for her posts against a certain race and against Workers' Party member Raisa Khan, whom she called a, open close quote, radical feminist. At least one sponsor dropped her and her Twitter feed is now closed to the public. With me today to talk more about the cancel and the woke are Lydia Lim, Head of Schools and Education Products at Singapore Press Holdings, and Theophilus Quek, a poet, writer and volunteer with migrant worker advocacy groups. Lydia and Theo, welcome. How are you feeling today? Morning. Hello. Good morning. I'm just glad I made it here on time (laughs) because I'm very particular about punctuality. That's good. That's good. Yeah, it's a nice rainy morning. It's perfect for work from home. Um, And we are, of course, not at home right now. We are here in the studio. I know. Yeah, yeah. So are you guys feeling woke today? Uh, I feel awake. I don't feel sleepy. (laughs) That's a good start. So I guess, yeah, let's talk first about being woke. Did you guys agree with my definition of woke? If not, what is your definition? Theo, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. So I think you did hit the main points of the definition, which is an awareness to certain aspects of social injustice. The example that you used from the fashion industry, I think that's one that's gained quite a lot of currency as well. Um, I think it's important to note that not everyone who is woke is necessarily woke about the same issues. So like how we might choose different causes to volunteer with, um, people have different interests and different backgrounds as well, and this might lead them to awareness about different aspects of injustice. So I may be very aware about injustice, environmental injustice, for example, but perhaps not necessarily translates into awareness about gender injustice. So these different kinds of injustices, of course, they also intersect. In one way of putting it, a level up of being woke would be being woke to the intersections between these different areas of injustice. And being aware of the intersectionality is also an added layer of awareness. Right. So I think for a lot of people, that opens up a lot of complexities because there's all these overlapping layers, right? Lydia, what do you think? What is your take on woke? Well, for me, woke is a fairly recent addition to my vocabulary. I don't know how long (laughs) this word has been around, but I think that I only started kind of using it maybe about two years ago. And there's a generation gap between Theo and myself because I'm someone who's well into her 40s. And I think I got to know this word because I was working with a group of young journalists in the Straits Times newsroom. And I was kind of like their editor and they were writing a column called Opinion of the Day. And one of them pitched this 
piece to me, which we eventually headlined, activism is not a dirty word. Oh dear. (laughs) But when, you know, he pitched this idea, I was just like, wow, this young man is like very socially aware, always bringing up issues related to social justice. And it was such a contrast to when I was starting out as a journalist. And I realized that people referred to him as woke. So then I started using the word myself because then the young journalist educated me on, oh, what is this woke culture about? And I started paying more attention to how some of them were a lot more socially aware than maybe other people. I do remember that piece when it came out, actually. And I think he and other young journalists have really brought a really refreshing sense of that awareness to the newsroom. I did want to respond to that, though, because you kind of inadvertently raised a sense of generational disconnect in terms of what people are woke about. And I do think that people who are aware of social injustices at different generations might be aware of different topics and different issues. At the same time, I think being woke is not the preserve of the young. Yeah, I would think so, too. Yes, yes. And, so and, I, and I, I realised this this week because <laughs> I was very surprised. And maybe it's because... Uh, like my father's generation, they just spoke about it less. But this week, I realised that he is very woke because I went over to his place for dinner and then he was really angry at the Liu Man Leong case, <laughs> Party Liani. And I, I think was everyone's... surprised, like, why was he so angry? And then finally, that's he a universal said something like, thing. the government has to do something about this because rich people should not be able to falsely accuse other people with impunity. And I thought, wow, my dad is woke. <laughs> Good on dad. But you know, you just mentioned the headline of the article, activism is not a dirty word. Is that a generation, you're betraying a generation by having that headline, no? Yes, because that's what the SGI principal had said. Ah. He had implied it in a speech that he gave to the school. Right, because it implies that people think activism is a dirty word in the first place. And where would that perception come from? And that's implicit bias, would you say, in a way? Yeah, well, there are a few threads that I wanted to respond to. I think the first one was your point actually about the response to the Party Liani case as something that we would expect to be universal at this stage. And of course, people who are aware to injustice would hope that everyone else shares their awareness. So when you're attuned to a certain injustice and you want to do what you can to change it, the expectation, of course, is that others in society would would see your point of view and would join you in that campaign, as it were. The other point I wanted to respond to was about the generational issue again. I think I'm part of a generation that is often labelled as woke. But I and many others of my generation would freely share, I think, that there are many of our age group who are not necessarily aware in I the agree. same way yes. to the same kinds of injustices, or perhaps being aware might not necessarily express that awareness in the same way as well. And it's important to be sensitive to that because when we call a certain kind of awareness woke, we may also be implicitly excluding on the basis of their vocabulary or class others who do not express their awareness in the same terms. So I think that's also important to remember. I think woke often gets attached to university-educated awareness or university-educated people expressing a certain sense of moral outrage at these moral injustices, right? And there are so many stereotypes and expectations that come that bound up with that sense of being woke. But not all people who are aware of that injustice or different injustices would necessarily use the same terms. Right. So it's like somehow maybe it's tied up with semantics, right? Because I think now we're very good at naming things. 
giving something a label, like you said, Theo. And there's good and bad things with that. So good as in you basically crystallize thinking around something and say, yes, I felt this for a long time. This is what it's called. But the bad part is there's an othering element to it where you say, oh, that's just another woke person, a young woke person who's just being annoying, right? And you kind of like put that person in a box. That's right. So that brings us back to your other points about the implicit bias behind activism is not a dirty word, right? What are the expectations that are at play when someone is pejoratively labelled as woke? Mm -hmm. And I think probably in public discourse, perhaps for a long time, it might have been taboo or it might have been unexpected at the very least to talk about certain kinds of injustices head on. And this is not for lack of trying, right? I mean, if we think about people like my publisher, Mr. Fong Ho Fang at Ethos Books, who back in the 80s, 70s, already was very vocal about certain <laughs> brands of injustices yeah. and, and faced some kind of blowback because of that. So it's not for lack of trying that this awareness of injustice has not entered the public sphere. But today, I suppose we are seeing a much more democratized and open public sphere where more kinds of discourse are accepted or acceptable. And as older people get on social media as well, that's the democratization that you're talking about. So it explains why your dad, I guess, maybe in a way is being exposed, Lydia, to more... Probably, uh, yeah. but I just wanted to say that even on the party, Liana. On, on party Liana case, I don't agree that it's universal, the outrage, because I was sharing this with my colleague and she said, oh, very good that your dad reacted that way. In her view, it was very good. Because when we discussed this at home and her mom just said, oh, all mates are trouble. She must, you know, this mate must have done something to upset this family and this is why all this has happened. So there's still a range. And I mean, I guess one... Are young people calling out their parents for having views like that? I'm not sure. Yeah, so I think that's something that we have come to grapple with in recent months, especially with the fallout of the dorm outbreak, right, of COVID-19. And on platforms like Rice Media, for instance, friends of mine have written precisely about that, about how do we take this conversation into the home and perhaps not challenge, but work with some of the pre-existing assumptions that others of our household may hold. Speaking as someone of the Christian faith myself, I think there is always the admonition to speak truth in love, right? So even if you want to call someone out, how do you do that in a gentle way that in a sense will continue to uphold what you treasure in the family space. But at the same time, you can remain true to your own awareness of what's going on out there beyond the front door. It'd be interesting to have a survey on whether this kind of uh, conversion of viewpoints within the family, you know, how effective that is, really. Well, I mean, I think I agree with you. It's a really difficult conversation to have, which is why I hesitated when you asked whether young people are calling out their parents, because I think this particular colleague of mine does find it difficult to have these conversations with her mom, And I think that she's not quite sure how to go about it. Right. Yeah, she can talk to Theo, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, so that's the woke part of the conversation. The other part is the cancel culture part. I think being woke can sometimes lead to cancel culture, not all the time. So let's talk about cancel culture. How do you define cancel culture? Who wants to go first? Lydia? I really don't know. (laughs) Okay, Theo. (laughs) So I suppose leading on from our discussion of what it means to be woke, one of the kinds of injustices we might be aware of is an imbalance in public discourse, right? Ideally, we would have an open marketplace of ideas in the public sphere. 
But of course, in most societies, that's not what we have, right? There are some people who, by virtue of their position or by virtue of their jobs, hold particular bully pulpits or what we might call positions of influence in a public sphere. And the act of cancelling refers to, I suppose, when someone who is aware of an injustice and aware of how someone in this position of power might be amplifying that sense of injustice would call out that person in a position of influence. And it's mainly used in a pejorative way, right? Yes. And this act of calling out, of course, might have, for the person in power, some negative consequences, right? They might, as you mentioned earlier, lose sponsorships or they might lose their positions. But it's important also to see that these are not objectively negative outcomes, right? There, there will be some who celebrate these outcomes that this person did not deserve that influence in the first place. Yeah. So it's a divisive idea, I suppose, of what it means to call out someone. But those who do so, I think, are charged with a sense of urgency that this injustice is so bad that the individual loss that this person might face from being cancelled is not equivalent to the good that is to be gained from calling them out. And that's, I suppose, the cost-benefit analysis that most would draw in cancelling someone else. And that's part of the democratization as well of things because I think in the past you felt injustice and you possibly could have suffered injustice quietly. But now with social media, with everyone being so connected globally, it's easy for, I guess, justice to be meted out, to be addressed on social media. So I'm just wondering, I mean, is cancel culture happening because of social media? I don't really know how cancel culture works, but I guess what I have learned from working with the younger journalists is what Theo had said earlier about how certain points of view are excessively amplified or they are just like considered what's right or what's accepted. And the younger journalists actually had all these views that were different from establishment norms. And we would have to discuss, you know, how to get a phrase such as Chinese privilege into the Straits Times because other people questioned whether there was such a thing and why should we be giving a platform to such points of view. So how do that. you navigate that discussion? I'm sorry, but I have to go back to the fact that I mean, some of my older colleagues who have senior positions, they sometimes push back. So then we, but working in a newsroom is about this, right? Sort of like talking and discussing what we think we should have in the paper and how do you see this? So it was interesting, but as Theo said, it's because this diversity of views came and we had provided a platform because we recognised that we wanted younger journalists to also have a voice in the paper, which sometimes doesn't happen because you might find yourself in a situation where just the people who are writing a lot are just, I don't know, they have a particular worldview and other worldviews are not being reflected. So I think to the question of whether social media has enabled cancel culture, I would say social media is probably a new platform on which cancelling can happen, but it's important also to take a historical perspective and see that cancelling is not new. And if we think about the iconoclasm of the religious wars of the 15th and 16th century, for example, defacing a sculpture or tearing down a painting, that is also cancelling, right? That is an act of protest against a voice or a position that has been institutionalised as being in power. Well, some people will call that anarchy, right? Sure. tearing down a building, so it's which word you use. And, but yeah. sometimes this anarchy is celebrated, right? At the end of the Cold War, you tear down Stalinist statues, for instance, and, and that is something that today would see as an act of freedom fighters, right? People who are standing for the ideals that were repressed for so long. Even today, regardless of whether someone's being cancelled on Twitter 
or a statue is being taken down at an old university, I think the resonances are still there. And the baseline premise is that you want to take down a position that has been enshrined or institutionalized for too long. What has changed, though, is I think the right to cancel. If you take the Cold War example once again, when the Soviet governments were still in power, Soviet-supported governments were still in power, of course, if you tried to take down a statue, bad things would happen to you and your family mm. um, and everyone who had ever spoken to you, right? Good luck. Yeah, okay. That's right. But <laughs> after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the right to cancel had been democratized, right? The men on the street can do that. And I think we are seeing the same thing as well here in Singaporean public discourse, right? Where at one point, people might have feared talking about certain issues for, for the risk of blowback. And I think today, the risks are felt less. And as such, people are more willing to call out people who might be in positions of influence. And I, I see this as a democratizing shift. Yeah, And I see there's a new fearlessness. I seem to have sensed this in yes, recent months yes. that so, people used to be anonymous keyboard warriors and now they're actually putting their names out yes. and they're speaking up against, uh, but, like, I for mean, example, Ivan I, Lim, the Ivan Lim thing before GE, right? Yes, um, yeah. yes. Yeah. This whole sense of injustice, yeah, I don't think it's a new thing. People have always felt that, oh, certain ways or certain practices in our society are unjust. Like if we talk about migrant workers, so back to Mr. Fong Ho Fang and the activism of the 70s and the 80s, right? And some of that was also around migrant workers. So this is what Taman observed about some of the people who were detained as part of that alleged Marxist conspiracy that he said they were actually, in his view, they were social activists. And many of them were working with migrant workers. But at that point, People didn't have a right or society did not think that we had a right to talk about migrant worker rights. Yeah, it was just not accepted to talk about it. And so... So society has evolved. Way, yes, yeah. society has evolved Well, at least in Singapore, lot. right? It's evolved yeah. quite a bit. And I, yeah. I, and I, uh, well, I think social media has had a large role to play in this. And I'm just... I'm just reminded of Marshall McLuhan, Canadian uh, commentator, who said the medium is the message. That was his famous phrase. And I, I think in this case, sometimes the medium is bigger than the message. Well, I mean, I think that it's not just social media because it was confined to social media. In a way, it, it could be dismissed as, oh, just a lot of talk, but where is the power? But I think, for example, in elections now, there's a clearer sense that people are going to vote according to their conscience or what okay, some, many people would still vote according to their rice bowl and whether I think the government is doing enough for me in terms of securing my jobs, my income, my children's future. But then there's also this element of like social conscience. And, and when you see, for example, more people being open to voting for the opposition and also expressing support you know, coming out and not just expressing it anonymously, then it also changes. And senior government leaders are saying now, basically, let's be more sensitive to diversity, uh, different points of view, let's have conversations and all that, right? So there is a sea change, I think. I think there are many things to be celebrated and there are many positives out there. At the same time, I think we should also remember that it's not always a one-way street, right? Just as society can become more open and more democratised, societies around the world can also become more repressive. 
And similarly, I think the space for conversation about certain issues can also open and close. I mean, if you think about, well, returning to the issue of advocating on behalf of low-wage migrants in Singapore, a lot of the advocacy around tuberculosis against the post-war British government in Singapore was because tuberculosis disproportionately affected the poor Chinese migrants who were living in very cramped conditions at the time. And if you go even further back, right, to the pre-war period when Sun Chongsan, uh, Sun Yat-sen was kind of advocating among the overseas Chinese community here for a kind of transnational or um, diasporic consciousness or sense of Chinese identity. I'm not saying that this is something to be celebrated, of course, but the acceptability at the time of forging that kind of transnational activism or advocacy was something that we might not see today. So I think there are fluctuations in the movements of social discourse as well. Some topics, some ideas, and some groups who are advocated for might take the limelight or lose the limelight in relation to other issues, in relation to other power players in public discourse. So it's a fighting yeah. for space, right? For discussion, yeah. in other words. So we all want, I guess, a more open discussion for the space for discussion to open up. But can cancel culture lead to the opposite? Sometimes it's censorship, right? That's what some people would say. If you're cancelling something, you're censoring something rather than listening or hearing. Well, I think it's censorship. I would call it censorship if, if it's a person with more power saying that, oh, these things should not be said. I do not want these to be discussed on a public forum and all that. But I think cancel culture is the other way around, right? It's people... Mm. It's from the ground up, yes. right? So it's, yes. a, it's a power dynamic yes. thing. So I think that's an important distinction. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. I think, as Lydia put it, probably censorship is the strong cancelling the weak. Right. Okay, so the other thing that's come up about cancel culture and woke culture, which we hear all the time, is that, oh, this is a purely Western import. So what is your take on that? Mm. The assumption behind that, of course, is perhaps linked to what we talked about earlier in terms of the language that is used around discussing issues of injustice or the language that is used when calling out someone in a position of influence. And this language, while it is not necessarily Western per se, I think it can seem foreign or it can seem strange to a public sphere that has not thus far been exposed to that kind of language. And this also links to the immediate previous point about censorship versus cancelling. Because those who are cancelled might not always feel like they are the ones in power and that the ones cancelling them are the weak. And that's where the intersectionality comes in? That's right. But those who are being cancelled might in fact feel that they are being victimised. And while many scoff at that idea, I think to step into their shoes, there is perhaps some subjective reality there. Can you give an example? Because it might seem that the young, quote-unquote, woke crowd who is cancelling them has university educations, has access to this cultural capital that people of their generation or their position might not have had access to. So I, I think that's something also for all of us to be aware of, right? When we call out injustice, do we do so using words that are condescending, using words that might inadvertently, with our theoretical knowledge or whatever goes on behind that, then become a form of violence to someone else? I think that for me in Singapore, the relevance of whether this is a Western import or not, it might also relate to the language that the particular group of Singaporeans or residents we are talking about, the language that they are most fluent and comfortable with. So, I mean, a question that I have in my mind is, how does this conversation about woke culture, for example, take place in the Chinese-speaking community in Singapore? Does it take place? You see, I don't speak Chinese well enough to know. But, for example, from what 
what we kind of anecdotally see, there's probably more interest in LGBTQ issues among a certain segment of English-speaking Singaporeans than in the Zaobao readership, for example. I mean, that is our sensing uh, anecdotally. So, is it the Zaobao editorial stance or is it the Zaobao readership? I mean, Theo, what is your take on what Lydia said? I'm not very sure, actually. I wouldn't say that I'm well-versed enough to respond to this because I think that might also be by virtue of what we see, right? I mean, in terms of different social media communities, certainly the different language communities are quite, quite distinct and quite separated. And also, I think there are plenty of WhatsApp groups and, I mean, there are different layers of social media, right? In chat groups, using WhatsApp, Line especially, or WeChat even, I think there are probably very strong non-English uh, language communities that we might not have access to or be aware of. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be able to draw that conclusion. But that speaks in itself to the fragmenting of public discourse that different spaces and communities have developed. Fragmenting is a negative term to use, but it's not always a bad thing. I think in these spaces, a sense of community solidarity can grow as well. People who feel like they were always sidelined and not heard by an English-speaking majority, might be able to find a safe and protected space in these communities. Yeah. But how do you pull all this together then? I mean, yes, good, there's a decentralization going on, uh, a lot of ground-up efforts to remedy injustice. But how do you, I mean, for want of a better term, manage everything so that there are good outcomes, right? Because there can be bad outcomes to cancel culture. But who wants to manage all this? Well, society. I'm not saying, I guess, one person, but how do we, right? So, I mean, what would you suggest as meaningful ways forward in this crazy, brave new world that we're in? Perhaps in light of the power dynamics that we have been talking about, a more fruitful question to ask would be, how do we participate responsibly in the discourse of today rather than how do we manage it? Because I think the idea of managing it sets ourselves up to be cancelled by someone else. I think responsible participation, though, that is the, the onus of everyone who wants to enter and join this public sphere. I think the first thing to note is that we all feel responsible to different things. Some of us feel responsible to our sense of family and belonging and to nation, for instance, and we may speak up in defence of that. So if a certain strand of this course seems to be threatening, for example, the integrity of the national community, we might react very strongly to that. While others of us feel responsible towards perhaps some ideas or ideals that are not necessarily tied by national or community boundaries, right? So the idea that we should help marginalised migrants, for example, that's not something that can be bound by a border, right, by definition. And if you feel responsible to that idea of justice, then you will react strongly against those who seem to hold an opposite viewpoint. So I think what then should bind us, not necessarily being responsible to the same things. We don't all have to champion the same causes or like the same things. But perhaps a shared code or a shared sense of what is acceptable or unacceptable to say to someone else or to do in the public sphere. How do we arrive at this code? Yeah, so I want to use Bertha's Facebook page as an example. And Bertha on her Facebook page, for instance, right, calls herself mistress of the wall, the one who wields the axe, right? And she polices her wall not in the same way as, for example, a repressive government might police films or books that are banned, but she polices her wall on the basis of civility, right? So I think on her wall, she, she welcomes a wide and diverse range of viewpoints, but she will ask you if you use the F word. And perhaps that is the kind of 
policing or the kind of soft management that we should aim towards, a kind of response that is based on a code of conduct or a sense of civility rather than a response based on what you're saying and what is not accepted. Yes, yes. I mean, I think I think actually this ties in very nicely with some work that IPS has been doing and which, I mean, Gillian asked me to take part in because I was very supportive and intrigued also by the work that they were doing. Because one way that our society is fragmenting is also around like single interests or single issue groups, right? And we explored this idea of how groups that either support or are against like pro-life or those who are pro-choice. I mean, how you can't come to a consensus on something like this, right? Because they are informed by a different set of values. So how do these groups coexist peacefully in a society like ours is we would have to think along the lines of what Theo said. It would be like a code of conduct as to how do we engage civilly in the public sphere. Right, your first yeah. principles, right? And what the values you stand for yeah. as a nation, as a people, perhaps? Or simply as a society, not even bound by the lines of nation. I think that's right. What it would take moving forward is to dig deeper for a certain sense of shared civility. In the past, what might have sufficed for consensus building might have been, you know, the national education values that we see in social studies lessons, for instance. But today, perhaps digging even deeper, what we might find in common, a sense of kindness, a sense of obligation towards each other, a sense that fellow feeling or at least empathy would be essential to build anything productive out of this public discourse. And I think that perhaps is, is probably worth all of us remembering, right, that we can advocate for different issues and we should, right, where we feel a sense of calling our responsibility to them. But to build something lasting and productive out of that conversation, right, what then will that require? Because that requires something more than what it requires to speak up about it. The doing does require an added layer, right? And some push and pull yeah. there, right? Of collaboration, uh, of compromise, yeah. Yeah. of aiming towards a landing zone that might not be defined yet. Yeah, this is fantastic. So I would say, I mean, I think this has been a fantastic discussion. I just want to throw a slight curveball to the both of you right now, just to tell me three things that we should do now going forward after we've had this spirited discussion of how to make Singapore a better society and more diverse and take woke to a better place? I don't have three. I only have one. Okay. Okay, so what sprang to mind as we were having this discussion is uh, following up on what Theo had said right at the start, which is that all of us are probably woke about different issues. It just reminded me of how, you know, I can be quite dismissive so I am interested in migrant worker rights, for example, but I can be quite dismissive of some of my colleagues who are, what I say, go on and on about environment and like, oh, why does like the death of one beaver or otter, you know, have to be a new story in the Straits Times? I have to learn personally to be more respectful of the issues that they are advocating for and how they choose to advocate. And so this goes back to the norms of civility and how we engage. And especially if the journalist in question is junior to me, then all that power dynamic also comes right, into play. Right, yeah. That's great awareness. Theo? I think the first thing, and speaking as a writer, of course, speaking with a journalist, would be to read widely and read voraciously and read people whom you disagree with and who disagree with you. Well, when I was in national service, and perhaps <laughs> something that many listeners might identify with, we spent a lot of time on Howard Zone and Reddit, right? <laughs> um, and Howard Zone and Reddit are perhaps the epitome of non-restricted public conversation, right? And you really do see all types. 
And that's important. It's important to expose ourselves to spaces where there will be opinions that are different from ours, that we might in a different setting perhaps be too dismissive of or be too exclusionary of. Yeah, so I think that's the first thing which is important. But don't just read Reddit, right? If that's all you read, that would be a problem as well. I mean, read news, responsible reporting, read literature, which attunes our senses to different issues. And of course, read about what's going on beyond our borders. So I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing that we can do collectively, while Lydia was saying her one thing earlier, I had a bit more time, so I thought of three <laughs> things. I think the second thing that we can do collectively is to celebrate those who do participate responsibly in our public sphere, right? There are some thought leaders, whether they're NGO leaders or perhaps business leaders, etc., who do champion open, responsible discourse and who do champion their own causes, perhaps, in very productive, respectful and progressive ways. Someone whom I'm thinking of, for example, is Corina, who is Executive Director of AWARE. And if you have ever been in a conversation with Corina, you will know that she is on fire for her cause. Yeah, I but, know Corina well. She's a great person. Yes, yeah. exactly. But at the same time, you will feel so uplifted and so encouraged by that conversation with her. And it's people like her, I think, who add so much to our public discourse by participating so wisely and responsibly in it. One thing about Karina, I mean, I work very closely with Karina as well. I'm a member of AWARE and used to be on the board. So Karina is very strong and passionate about the cause, but she's never mean. She's never violent in her discourse. She's always very accommodating and open to hearing different views and appearing on different platforms, which I really admire. And I think I agree with you, Theo. I think that's a model of, uh, of discourse that we can encourage and should encourage and try and model for ourselves as well going forward. Yeah. Yeah. So some initiatives to celebrate such um, responsible participation. If we think about the SOAP Awards recently, stories of a pandemic, right? Celebrating responsible reporting during the COVID-19 period. I think that's important. The third and last point, and um, as a history student, I will return to this, is to remember how far we have come, I think. A sense of historical perspective. What things were unsayable 20 years ago and are sayable now. But also in what senses public discourse might be shrinking as well in other areas. Um, and to hold on to a sense of not letting that shrink further. Yeah, so a sense of a historical perspective where the conversation we're having now is not taken out of context, but it's really just part of a much longer contest of public space. Yeah. Yes, fantastic. And I think, I mean, we've covered quite a lot in this half an hour. I think that's, that's an amazing discussion we've had. Thank you, Lydia and Theo, for taking the time to be with us in the studio today. I certainly enjoyed our discussion. There was certainly a lot of food for thought. And thank you everyone for listening. See you again next time on another episode of On Diversity. On Diversity is a podcast inspired by the Institute of Policy Studies Managing Diversity's research program. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. Swipe on the cover art to see the show notes for more info on this episode or visit us on our website, ipscommons.sg. Do subscribe to be notified when we have a new episode. And if you like what you heard, tell a friend or give us a five-star review. It really helps other people find us. I'm your host, Ong So Chin, reminding you to always keep your body healthy and your mind open. Goodbye. Goodbye.